Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 50, The Earliest East Anglians. East Anglian history poses a particular problem for historians of Anglo-Saxon England. The Kingdom of East Anglia was one of just four kingdoms still in existence when the great heathen army landed in England in 865, but hardly any written records survive from its time as an independent kingdom, most likely due to its having suffered the bulk of the army's initial onslaught, which seemingly destroyed the kingdom's major religious and administrative centres. Most of the pre-1066 information that we have about East Anglia comes from Bede. He got his information from at least three different churchmen, Albinus, Nothhelm, and Essi, as well as various oral and literary traditions circulating about important saints and their churches, such as St. Athelthrith. Bede also provides valuable information, such as a list of East Anglian kings, but he doesn't give us any of the dates of their reigns, and there has long been suspicion that some of his information is not accurate. To supplement Bede, some historians look to post-1066 chroniclers, like William of Malmesbury and Roger of Wendover, who do give us plenty of dates for major events in East Anglian history. However, the dates given by these analysts are infamously suspect, even for things that we can be fairly certain of when they occurred, so most of those offered by them need to be treated with a great deal of scepticism since, at the end of the day, most of them are probably little more than guesses. In addition to histories and chronicles, the other main written source for East Anglian history is saints' lives. While these tend to be written with less of an interest in political history, many of the hagiographies that we will discuss during this look at East Anglia contain information about politics, even if some of this tends to say more about the politics of the time when the hagiographies were written than the time that they purport to describe. Lastly, there is of course archaeology, and here East Anglia is particularly blessed on account of the famous Sutton Hoo ship burial. I will dedicate an entire episode to that discovery, but it is not the only archaeological find from East Anglia. As I'll talk about, especially in this episode, there is quite a lot of archaeological evidence, particularly from the early period of East Anglian history, which can help us to build some sense of how the Kingdom of East Anglia took shape. These then are some of the ways that we can compensate for the general lack of original material relating to East Anglian history. Archaeology especially is useful since it can provide a way of testing and confirming dates given in the otherwise somewhat questionable written material. But with archaeology, we always run into two problems. 
One being that objects very rarely tell us anything about themselves, leaving their interpretation entirely up to the discoverer. The other being that if we don't discover an object, we can't know of its existence. So therefore, anything that we haven't found that might shed light on the history of East Anglia, we simply don't know exists or don't even know to expect to find. And that's why archaeology can so completely upend our previous assumptions about this period, because a new discovery can cast events in a completely new light, and even introduce us to events that occurred that we previously knew nothing about. So, these are just some of the things that we all have to wrestle with during this look at the Kingdom of East Anglia. But with this brief survey of the problems facing us out of the way, let's proceed to the history of East Anglia itself. This episode, I want to focus on the archaeological evidence for the early history of the East Angles. Next episode, I will attempt to present their history from the reign of their first legendary kings up to that of the first genuinely historical king, King Radwald. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given East Anglia's position on the eastern coast of Britain, it offers us some of the earliest evidence for Germanic settlement following the departure of the Romans. A particularly good example of this is the village of Rendlesham in Suffolk. This village is just five miles, or eight kilometres, from the royal burial at Sutton Hoo, and Bede tells us that it was an important royal centre for the East Angles, a claim that is seemingly supported by its proximity to the aforementioned burial. Yet Rendlesham had a pre-Anglian history, as a Roman military compound, where Germanic culture had begun to dominate the archaeological record by the second quarter of the 5th century. What makes it particularly interesting is that there is no evidence for the sites having been abandoned between the Roman and the Germanic presence, it seems instead that Anglians were brought in to man the defences of the Roman fort, and eventually came to outnumber the local Romano-British population without any significant disruption in settlement. Possibly these mercenaries brought their families or facilitated waves of non-military migration, since Suffolk also preserves some of the earliest evidence in Britain for farming settlements built of the Germanic type. A farm with sunken featured buildings, that is where the floor is dug into the ground, dating from the mid-5th century, which is similar to those found in northern Germany at this same period, was excavated at Weststow, further inland from Rendlesham. The archaeological record would suggest then that Anglian settlement was underway in East Anglia by the early 5th century, only a few decades after the Roman legions had withdrawn from Britain. It also suggests, though, some truth to the story of Watergern inviting the Saxons as mercenaries, although quite possibly the first Germanic mercenaries in the region came there under the auspices of the Roman Empire as foderati, barbarians paid with money and land to protect the empire's borders from the encroachment of other barbarian groups. This probably was part of what is known as the Saxon Shore, a series of coastal forts in eastern Britain meant to protect the province from seaborne Germanic raiders. None of this is to say that the migration into East Anglia was violent. As I've said multiple times now, there is little evidence for Saxon conquest. Instead, in East Anglia as elsewhere, archaeological evidence suggests that the newcomers often, although not always, 
settled in existing communities, with no signs of major upheaval. One area where East Anglia offers a good amount of evidence for cultural difference between the Romano-British and the Anglians is in burial. The British in the 5th century had largely abandoned the practice of cremation. Some argue that this was due to the spread of Christianity, which, following Jewish example, generally rejected cremation as a pagan practice. This is possible, but it is also the case that cremation was not universally practiced by pagans. Instead, cremation at this time was an extremely costly and labour-intensive practice. Building and maintaining a fire hot enough to fully consume a human body with grave goods would be a community effort and require a huge amount of wood and other ignition elements that could be better used for other purposes. Given the economic hardships that we know had beset Britain in the early 5th century, it is entirely conceivable that struggling citizens would opt for inhumation over cremation as a matter of economy rather than for religious reasons, although it is entirely conceivable that some element of both of these motivations was at play. At around this same time, though, we know from excavated cemeteries that the incoming Anglians and Saxons did practice cremation, at least in some situations. The Anglians especially seem to have been fond of the practice, and would create decorated urns in which to bury the ashes, sometimes with additional grave goods. These urns in themselves are quite interesting artefacts, often being decorated with stamped designs, such as serpentine designs, or occasionally some runes, and on a few occasions also things that resemble swastikas, which are usually interpreted as either solar symbols or as symbols associated with the thunder god Thunor. Especially in East Anglia, some of these urns could be quite elaborate. For example, from Spong Hill in Norfolk comes the so-called Spong Man, a 14.3 centimetre tall sculpted figure of a seated man holding his head in his hands, which seems to have served as the lid of an urn. This find is especially unusual because so few three-dimensional sculptures have survived from the Anglo-Saxon period. That one was made to serve as the lid of an urn indicates something of the resources the Anglians were prepared to commit to the practice of cremation, suggesting that for them it was indeed a cultural, possibly religious practice. With the spread of the migrants, the Romano-British seemingly vanish from the record. Some genetic testing of inhumed bodies in East Anglian cemeteries suggests that some of the Britons intermarried with newcomers, and they may have adopted their culture. Some of the bodies, for example, have yielded up genetic markers which indicate that they are of British descent. But quite possibly, others chose to move westwards, even if the migration of the Saxons, or the Anglians in this case, was not in itself inherently violent. Behind them, they left a landscape being transformed by new peoples, who were bringing in new ideas. These Anglians came as mercenaries, and thus when they built new polities, or perhaps took over and remade existing ones, this was reflected in a political focus on former military settlements, manned and occupied by a new military elite. Exactly who these elites were will be discussed in the next episode because they ultimately gave rise to the kings of the East Anglians. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to remind you that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider that you're using to listen to this. 
It also helps when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel and when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts by pledging to one of the show's patron tiers. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a shout-out to all of you who've pledged money to support the show. Thank you so much for your support. It really means so much to me, and it really helps me to keep making this program. Once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.